this morning, if you would take your Bibles to the book of 1 John and the third chapter, we'll be looking there in just a moment. Again, 1 John chapter 3. Now, uh, the lesson this morning, well, uh, you'll see it in just a second, but uh, the lesson this morning, we're going to be talking about the idea of Satan's deception for patience. And granted, this is going to be kind of a uh, lesson that leads us into another lesson where Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about God's plan for love, and we're going to see uh, how God teaches us to love each other as brethren. Now, today, we're going to see kind of the opposite of that. We're going to see in scriptures uh, how Satan seeks to divide and teach us to hate one another. Now, in 1 John chapter 3, I want you to notice first in verse 10, he states, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Now, we could spend time, we're not going to go into that text today, but later in 1 John, he's going to equate those who hate the brothers, hate their brethren, as to a murderer, and the fact that there is no eternal life abiding within them. But I want you to first see something here. Let's take a step back. And let's see Satan and how he has come to Christ. And this is a very interesting thing to me. In the Bible, we find that Satan would seek to confront Jesus. In Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4, both texts, Jesus is there in the wilderness. He's being tempted by the devil during those 40 days or in those 40 days. And we would find three different temptations that are brought to him. Now, one thing that is very interesting Satan always seeks to come at Jesus, or most any of us, in a time where we are the weakest. Remember, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He has hit rock bottom physically, and Satan is willing to offer him anything. He'll offer him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory. He will pay a high price. And I want you to think, if he's willing to do this to Jesus, how much more is he willing to do that to his followers? What type of price would Satan pay to try to get you? Now, let's keep that in mind, okay? He's trying to destroy Christ, coming at him, but what about us? Now, I first want you to notice when we look at some of the points, let's first briefly just look at some of these verses that command us to love. And then we're going to go through and see how Satan tries to do the opposite. So some of these texts you're probably very well acquainted with. John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 39, he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we've often equated this as the second greatest command. Remember Jesus telling us the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Second's like it, uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if I am to love someone as myself, I'm not going to hate myself. I'm going to do what is the best for them. I'm going to do things that are helpful for their souls and even for their physical well-being. But in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so... I want you to notice here, we'll see it in some of the other texts that we look at in just a moment. There's a lot of one another statements in the Bible. You see them all over, and so often they are in a good light. What we need to do for each other. The command to love one another. Now, 
And this specific practice becomes an influencer. So how can we influence the world to see that we are the disciples of Christ? It's not by maybe biting and devouring each other, as Paul warned about in Galatians, but rather it's the love that we have for each other. And I want you to notice, I want you to see how deep does this love go. And I'm not going to read all this text. I would encourage you to write the, the verses down and, and always go back and read through it when you have the time. But in John 15, again, John continues on this aspect of love. Notice verse 12 and verse 13. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, uh, in this text, it's a very simple statement, but very hard to put into application. The greatest aspect of love is to lay down your life for your friends. Now, if you're taking notes, I would write down 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. It's the same effect. And the willingness to lay down your lives for the brethren. Now, uh, this is a challenge because sometimes things happen between brethren and we start to say, well, well, this is difficult. And that's where we have to look at Christ, his willingness, his love, no matter what. Now, the call in Scripture is to love. Okay, We're going to see that more and more next week, Lord willing. But the call is to love one another. The call is also for us to work and labor together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to chapter 14 are very key on this. Because it's talking about the body. And we could go, we could look at chapter 13, it becomes very evident some of the Corinthians are not acting in love and how they relate each other, to each other in the body. So we're going to see some of those things. Uh, but we're to work, we're to labor together. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 16, will talk about the need for each individual working part to be working together. We are a body. We are to feel the things one another feels in essence, even to rejoice with those who rejoice, to weep with those who weep, we need to be there for each other. Now, I'm not going to read all this text. I'm going to point out more so what we have down here, because it's going to be kind of a, a premise that we need to remember for the rest of the lesson. I want you to notice, he's talking there even about the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, when we start to look in this next point, we're going to see things that Satan does in his attempt to divide brethren, to bring hatred, those kinds of things. And I need you to think as we go through every single point from here on out, does it fit this category? Okay, is this a matter of I'm not doing wrong to my neighbor? Or is this a matter of I am doing wrong to my neighbor? This is a detrimental thing to my soul, potentially theirs. So I, I need you guys, if you remember anything, love does no wrong to a neighbor. And most certainly that would include uh, us as Christians. Now, let's talk about this idea of Satan's deception. And this is something, we're going to see these kinds of ideas in scriptures, but I want you to see the first one here is not bringing the fault to the offender. Now, I think most of you know what this means. Someone has been wronged, and instead of going to the person who has done the wrong, okay, let me go and let me talk to everyone else. Let me bring this to your attention, not to their attention. Let me you know, talk, and this kind of becomes that opportunity where unfortunately things are said that should not be said. 
Now, before I go into that, I want you to think, this is what we need in those moments. We need a heart, excuse me, we need to have a humble heart on both sides of the equation. Uh, and I will tell you that because if pride is something is that, that's in the way, you're never going to have reconciliation. You're never going to have people striving to do what is right in those moments. This requires a humble heart. Okay, maybe I have done something wrong. Let's look at the Bible. Let's see what it says. That way I can make those things right. Or if I'm the one coming to the offender, that I come with a sense of, again, not just being humble, but a godly love, a sincere love that I want to work things out with that individual. Now, unfortunately, this is what can happen. Sometimes this becomes opportunity that one might betray trust. They might speak to others. We often talk about gossip or slander. And the unfortunate reality in this culture that we live in right now, I think it's nothing new, but gossip and slander are what people aim for. They aim for the negative things. Uh, you sometimes will hear it on TV, just tell me the gossip. Tell me the juicy details. They, uh, you'll see people talk about things like barbershops on TV where they'll, they'll have everyone sitting around in the chairs and talking about everything that, well, should not be brought up. Okay, so sometimes this becomes that avenue. Now, I want you to notice one of the things that we're told in the Proverbs that God absolutely hates and just detests. Now, he says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, you're going to notice from verse 17 and also this verse down here, there's things that deal with what we say. And in fact, the lying tongue uh, or the false witness who utter lies. There has always been something against the false witness in the Bible. Uh, even when we get to the point of the New Testament and we see Christ being falsely accused, it's interesting, those men actually should have had death by what they were accusing Jesus of. If we went back to the law and we saw the things that they were accusing him of. But here's one of the things that we see G uh, God absolutely hates. He sees as an abomination, one who spreads strife among brothers. Now, some of your translations will render it this way. It talks about the one who sows discord. Again, that's the opportunity for the gossip, the slander, the lies. Maybe someone's tr trying to spread doubts and suspicion in your mind about someone else. And, and this is going to have other effects that we'll see in just a moment at different points. It's going to lead to further sinful things. Now, what needs to happen in that moment? I want you to notice this. These are texts right here that deal with going to that individual. Okay, These are moments where, okay, there's something that has happened. Let me go to that individual. That's where it needs to be, especially... If we went to Matthew 18, verse 15, really, and, and on, not just that verse, it deals with the steps leading into church discipline. And I think most of you guys are quite familiar with that. But I want you to notice Matthew 5. This is a text we're going to see a few times this morning. And notice in verse 23. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. 
Now, a lot of us would look at this and we would think it needs to be the reversal. Well, I need to go, in our terms, we would say, I need to go to church and then I need to do this. Okay? You see Jesus stressing the importance of reconciliation. Here's fault between a brother and this individual. The first thing he needs to do, priority, okay? The first thing is go to him. Be reconciled to him. I have often stressed about the Bible. Not just that it's a book about marriage, but it's a book about reconciliation. From the beginning to the end, God striving to reconcile a people to him. The same thing is always expected among those in the body of Christ. Now, I want you to notice, okay, let's go a little bit deeper here into this. Because when we see this opportunity, some may not bring the fault to the offender. This kind of starts to become the next thing that happens. Now there's no seeking at all for reconciliation. And I will tell you, this is where Satan has the person exactly where he wants them. If there's no reconciliation that they are seeking to bring, and I'm going to tell you why in just a moment. We'll bring up some texts that are going to bring that idea. But I want you to see this is where Satan has us exactly where he wants us. Now oftentimes it's this Satan. Look what they did to me. And this is a lot of times where the pride is struck. And this becomes a very dangerous thing. So we're, we're focusing on what they did to me and not necessarily what they've done against God. And I want you to notice, this is a phrase that I have heard at times even growing up. <coughs> Excuse me. Maybe water here in just a minute. But this is a phrase that I had often heard growing up, this statement that I will never forget them. And it's very interesting. statement that I will never forgive them. And this is a problematic statement. Uh, I want you to think, have you ever found yourself saying this at some point when you have been wronged, whether by a Christian or a non-Christian for that matter, but the statement that I will never forgive them. And again, this is where we start to see uh, the Bible is going to make the point about the need for reconciliation. Matthew chapter 18, after he's already talked about the idea of church discipline, he goes on to talk about the stance of someone wronging you and the need to forgive them. Now, I want you to notice, I'm going to read this text in Matthew chapter 18, and I want you to notice verse 21. It states, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him of the seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, he's not saying stop at 490. That's not the emphasis that we're getting here. So long as my brother comes to me and he sought my forgiveness, that's what I need to do. Now, this is difficult, and we're going to have to think about this later in correlation between us and Jesus, how we've wronged him, how he's forgiven us. We need to keep that in mind. But there's the need in the Bible for reconciliation. This is not the only time we're going to see that. But there's also the problem, if I will not forgive, okay, the Bible speaks of condemnation in this effect. Matthew chapter 6, I'm not going to read from it, 
But you remember Jesus when he's teaching his disciples how to pray. At the end of the prayer, he talks about if you forgive others, that God will forgive you. He also relates in verse 15 the opposite of that, that if you are not willing to forgive others, he will not forgive you. And I've often paraphrased it as, you can't go to heaven. If I hold that in my heart and I don't forgive another brother, I can't have the prize. I can't go to heaven and be with God. Now, I want you to notice this continuing along this line of thought, because both of these texts, these deal with God and how he has forgiven us. And that's where we have to start looking at this. When I see, well, whether there's a complaint or a fault against me by someone, whatever it is, and there's the need to forgive that individual as God has forgiven us, that's where things start to get kind of this eerie when we say, I, I will never forgive them. Because this is what I would say is hypocrisy at its finest. If I say, I will never forgive that individual. I want you to think about these statements for just a moment. What if God held our wrongs against us the way that we hold them against others? That's where every person in this room would just fall down and crawl out the door. We're, we're done. We're doomed. Nobody can make it if that's the reality. Okay, you see in the Bible, the love and the mercy and grace of God continually, when we come to him, he is willing to forgive us. The problem sometimes, we almost demand from God what we won't give to others. So how many times do we pray to God? We think back to 1 John chapter 1 and, and how if we confess our sins to him, that he's faithful and just to forgive us. But we, we think, well, I expect God to forgive me, but do I forgive others? Are they expecting me to forgive them when they come to me, when something has happened? We ought to be willing to do that. Do the things that God has done for us. Okay, reconciliation is priority. And I would ask, actually, if you would take your Bibles back to Matthew 5, maybe in Matthew 18 in a moment. But if you would take your Bibles back to Matthew 5, we're again going to see uh, some things there. I want to read this verse again. And I want you just to see it. I'm not going to go into it so much again. But we're going to look at a few more verses here in this text in just a moment as well. But in Matthew 5, verse 23, again, he states, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Okay, again, just want you to see that priority of reconciliation. Now, this is where uh, we can take it a step further in a bad way. Again, this is how Satan seeks to deceive, divide, and cause issues among brethren. So when we're not willing to reconcile, this can sometimes follow next. There is the problem where we take into account a wrong suffered. Now, most of you are probably thinking, wait, I, I know the opposite of that. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13 talks about the command to love, to love brethren. And one of the things that Paul tells us there is that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. You're going to see a lot of those does not statements or, or do not statements in the text. And we're going to see in this lesson kind of the opposite of that. What does hatred look like? The idea of taking into account a wrong suffered. Now, the problem is when reconciliation is not there, when it's not met, this is where things start coming along in our hearts. And unfortunately, this is what tends to follow next. So, <clears throat> 
think, have you ever had a moment in your life where you, you said, I'm just, I'm not going to reconcile to them. I, I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to do this. And before you know it, because you didn't do that, you're just being eaten up. It's just, you start to form a grudge. Bitterness is in your heart. And you're thinking and saying everything that you do not wish to say. Now, the Hebrew writer, and I'm blank on the chapter at the moment, but the Hebrew writer talks about the idea of the root of bitterness, and it springs up, and by it, many are defiled. Many of the members are defiled. That's the problem, because we often say and do things in those moments that we ought not to do. Now, uh, it becomes the moments of anger, the moments where we turn it sometimes even outwards and just become rage and wrath towards others. But again, it goes back to this. It's often a matter of my pride has been struck, and I'm just not going to let it go. I'm not going to seek reconciliation, so I'm going to hold these things within. Now, I want you to notice, and I'm just going to kind of reference this here. I want you to notice what true biblical forgiveness looks like. Because sometimes when we talk about the idea of forgiveness, we think, well, okay, I, I'm going to hold on to that for a rainy day. So the moment comes, you have a group of people standing around talking about someone, and oh, I, I remember when brother so-and-so did this, and now it becomes the gossip circle. Now it becomes the slander circle. When you see God forgiving us, it's the idea that he will remember our iniquities no more. It's not that God just can't remember and he's, he, he's losing his memory. That's not it at all. It's the idea, I'm not going to take it into account anymore. I'm not going to hold it against them. He doesn't use it as fuel for the fire on a rainy day, if that makes sense. Canceling the debt is the idea of true biblical forgiveness. Now, we need to see kind of the reversal of this for just a second. Because sometimes, if we're wronged, uh, we take into account a wrong suffered. That's where we hold it against. But that's where we also have to seek the opposite of this. We have to see the reversal here. Uh, maybe it's a, a time where I've done the wronging, and so someone has approached me. And this, again, goes back to something that I stated earlier. The humble heart is key. The prideful man will never see what he's done wrong. He will never see it. Remember Luke 18, how the Pharisee is praising God concerning himself and all the things he does right, but there he condemns the others, even the tax collector, and the things he sees of a sinful nature within. Okay, of course... The Pharisee did not go home justified. The tax collector did. But it's the humble heart that is needed. Let's lovingly look at the Bible. Let's see what it says about the circumstances that are going on, and let's address it. Do what the Bible says. That should always be our goal. Now, here's something else that goes hand in hand with the things we've just spoken about. So I want you to notice this can kind of lend into the hateful speech, and this Again, this is where the grudge and the bitterness, when they creep in, this is where the mouth starts speaking things. And unfortunately, unlawful, ungodly things. And I will tell you once again, this is when Satan has us exactly where he wants us. He is trying to pin us as enemies against each other in the body of Christ. Now, I want you to think of the concept. What do we hear, whether in scripture or even in history, sometimes we hear the statement, but a house divided against itself will what? Not stand. It will fall. Okay? It's not that it may not stand or that it may, okay? It's not that. It will fall. When you have brethren who come against each other and there's division that has occurred, it is a matter of time before they just start to fall. They start to divide. 
Okay, so this becomes the problem. And I want you to think of this idea. When unrighteous anger, it stops us making rational, <coughs> still can't talk, rational and logical decisions. And we understand the idea of anger in the Bible. Okay, anger is not always a bad thing, granted. Uh, you can be angry and yet not sin. If we went back to Ephesians 4, there's times where we see a righteous indignation, the anger Jesus had when they were making the, the temple a den of thieves. There's times where we see it used in a good way. But unfortunately, there's the times where we see it used in a very inappropriate way, what becomes an unrighteous anger. And we're going to see one of those verses in just a moment. But things where it becomes an unrighteous anger, and the problem is in those moments, the rational side, the logical side, they just shut off. And now we will say and do anything. And this is what I've often thought about this. When we talk about an unrighteous anger, there are no limits as to what a man can do in an unrighteous anger. I want you just to keep that in mind. There are no limits to what a man can do in an unrighteous anger when that has occurred. Now, that can be a bad thing. If it's a righteous anger, it can be a good thing. But the angry words that we have in those moments, this is where it is challenging. Now, remember Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read that text in just a moment. But Matthew chapter 5, and really the Sermon on the Mount itself to chapter 7, has always been intriguing to me because I know a lot of the Jews in those times, they took what was said in the law and they dumbed it down. They lowered the bar as if we kept the law. And the problem is they didn't keep the law. How many times do you see Jesus state, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So you have heard that it was said, and then here's some type of consequence that they thought, okay, sometimes from the law, or maybe they misused the law, and then he gives something that's even higher in elevation, how serious this actually is. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, he'll go on and talk about the reconciliation and the text right after this. But I want you to notice this here. This is a matter of, you have heard that it was said, okay, notice verse 21, or that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. Now, we know that from the law of Moses. The statement, though, beyond that, okay, they'll, they'll be liable before the court. That's what they have heard. Now, Jesus takes this. He elevates this. Think of the idea of the things you say in anger against a brother. To the point, not just being guilty before the court, but calling your brother a fool in anger is guilty enough to put you into hell. That is terrifying. The words we say to our brethren in anger can lead us to the pits of hell. James chapter 1 is one of those key texts when we talk about this idea. In verse 19, and this is not the only time that James is going to talk about the things we say and the things that we do. We'll see more of that in a moment. But in verse 19 of chapter 1, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, I want you to think all the situations that we have described earlier, where Satan seeks to 
deceive and cause brethren to do certain things, it is often where we do the opposite of everything we have sensed, where we then have that anger of man that doesn't achieve God's righteousness. And so instead of being quick to hear, we are slow to hear. I just want to get my point across. I want to, I'm listening just enough so I can then come to you and speak against you. Or the idea, instead of being slow to speak, okay, and quick to speak, that idea. Uh, or instead of being slow to anger, being very quick to anger. Again, these things are destructive. They will destroy not just you, but those who are around you. Now, this, are, this might be some things that you might just consider, things we can do in those moments. Things I think are very hand-in-hand hand with what James is telling us. But I want you to think just a few things, and you might have more in mind. That, that would be great. I, I would encourage you after this, bring more to me. I would like to see those things that would be helpful in moments like this. But sometimes it can be a matter of, let's ask to discuss this at a later time. Maybe there's a fault between a brother, and the person's fuming at that moment. So at that time, say, can we talk about this later? Or can we talk about this tomorrow? And granted, yes, it still needs to be talked about. There always needs to be that reconciliation, that conflict resolution. Uh, it might be important, as hard as this will be sometimes in those moments, Ask one another to pray for each other. That's probably one of the best things that you can do in that moment. Get that person, both of you, that is, get each other to be on your knees in prayer to God for one another. That is an aspect of love. That is something we should be doing for each other to begin with. But speak that you might pray for each other in this circumstance you're going through. If you need to, write out your thoughts, throw it away. Okay? And I say this, especially in this culture and the realm of social media. Okay, Have you ever been on Facebook or wherever, you typed out something, and then you push enter, or you push send, or, or whatever, and now you're thinking, I wish I didn't do that. And the fire just storms, and everything goes wrong. And you start to look back and think, I said some terrible things, and I, I just, I want to go back and erase that now. Sometimes it might benefit, not on there, just to write the things out in your mind, erase it, and come back to it the next day in a loving manner, talk things out, okay? We're not here uh, to be enemies. And I want you to notice this as well. When you have conflict with someone else in the body of Christ, you're seeking heaven together. That's something that I can't stress enough. We are seeking heaven together. We think about the Hebrew writer talking about running the race with endurance. Remember that idea how we run the race set before us with endurance? I think the problem is Satan seeks to divide brethren by getting them to think we're competing against each other and not with each other for the same prize, okay? So trying to pin us against each other as if it's a competition or something where we're, again, against each other. Our aim is heaven. If I took you to some of the texts about Christ, and we may do that at some point later, but if I take you to texts, especially like Philippians 2, and see the humility of Jesus, I'm thinking he did whatever it took to get us to go to heaven. He did whatever he had to within God's will, and in his death, to strive to bring us to heaven. I would encourage you to remember that in those moments. I also would encourage you to remember this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29, and really on, it talks about the things that we say. Uh, and I want you to notice, I'm going to read this text, Ephesians chapter 4. In 
in verse 29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Notice, this is a text that I referenced earlier, he says, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Now, and this interesting thing back in verse 29, let no unwholesome words. Some of your texts will say corrupt communication, corrupt speech. That's the thing where we go just and we attack them in a very ungodly way. In these moments, this becomes, I need to speak in such a way that it edifies. I need to speak in a way that will give grace to the hearer, no matter what the moment is. Now, uh, another step deeper for these things here. This is where relationships and reputations are destroyed. And I don't have to rehash this so much. This is just what happens in a lot of these situations. But this is where gossip and slander come, lies, or the behind-the-scenes talk that often comes. And this is where I need to encourage everyone. I need you to see, what do you do in those moments where someone is approaching you and they're just, maybe they're belittling or they're slandering another Christian. What do we need to do in that moment? This is where we have to strive so diligently. Be the humble Christian in that moment. Again, be the humble Christian in that moment who will practice wise discernment. Okay, that's important. Wise discernment. We're not going to be the person who fuels the fire. Oh, let me tell you what I heard about them. And let's go down that. No, we don't go down that path. We need to be the fellow or the lady who comes and they stop gossip in its tracks. I'm not going to let that continue. This is something where we tell them, go to that individual, talk to them, okay? Seek to talk to them, seek to work it out with them. Now, I want you to notice some of these texts. I'm going to read some of these, especially in James chapter 3. I would encourage you, if you would, take your Bibles there for just a moment. Again, James chapter 3. I'm going to just reference the other two first. Um, but again, James chapter 3. And before I read it, these other texts, again, in part, deal with the way that we speak. Uh, Colossians chapter 3 will talk about things like anger, wrath, malice, but he will talk about other things like lies and even slander, okay? Those type of issues that are sometimes there. Titus chapter 3 verse 2 will tell us to speak evil of no man. Now I want you to notice in James chapter 3 and verse 6, James has warned about the power of the tongue and not in a good way. The dangers, the power of the tongue, how difficult it is to control. In verse 6, he says that the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our, our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Now, you can see kind of the, the struggle, the battle that goes there. If we went earlier on in the same chapter, he'll talk about powerful animals and ships and things that we can control, like this little thing 
And now he's talking here about the tongue, the destructive nature of it. Yes, some bless their God, but they curse those who are men, those made in the likeness of our Lord. So it becomes very problematic. Again, this is where we have to stop things in their tracks. Now, I want you to consider, we're going to look at maybe one more thing here after this, but I want you to consider when we talk about the words that are being said in connection to other people, is this something that is going to hurt the cause of Christ? And this is where I have to think, if I am talking especially to someone who is of the world about these things, this is where it gets really problematic. Because again, remember back in John, uh, John, I believe it was 15, when he talked about, or maybe 13, I'm sorry, but uh, where he talked about the idea of how the world would know we were his disciples by our love for each other. If we're talking to the world about other disciples of Christ, and they're seeing, well, they're just, they're against them. They're slandering them. They're speaking evil of them. It's going to hurt and cause harm to the cause of Christ. Will it cause hurt to our brethren, the way that we speak to them? Okay, just questions to consider. Uh, I'm not going to go into that so much, though, this morning. But I want you to notice here, Satan's deception, sometimes it is about assuming the worst first. And again, this is kind of the opposite effect. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7, when he talks about love, he says love believes all things. That's the person who's assuming the best first, okay? Uh, until I am proven wrong, I'm going to assume the best first. And yes, I may be proven wrong. Those things will happen sometimes. But we want to believe the best about our brethren in the circumstances that come up. Now, this is what we need to do in those moments. Things that we can consider doing. First things first, we need to know the facts. If someone comes to you and they're talking about brother so-and-so and what they're doing, okay, we need to know the facts first, okay? And so, again, that's where you can stop gossip in its tracks. But if you're bringing up these things, it needs to be where we're talking to that individual. What has actually happened, okay? What's the actual circumstances? Don't find yourself falsely accusing. I know this is a, an Old Testament text here, but it's very much a New Testament principle as well, especially when we see it against Jesus what they've done against him. We need to be careful that we don't accuse first. This is how fights get started. Again, be willing to listen. Be willing to kind of see where were they coming from and assume that they had good intentions until proven otherwise. Uh, I think back for me sometimes, and I don't know if you guys may have done similar, where writing out something like an email and, and then the brother's like, you didn't respond for five days. What's happening? <laughs> okay, I didn't hit enter. I forgot to hit send. Something as simple as that. I've done that a thousand times, I feel like, probably. Uh, but uh, sometimes it might be something as simple as that. I need to kind of take a step back, see what were the facts. Why did this happen the way it did? Okay? Uh, last thing, okay? Satan's deception sometimes comes by the way of the sin of selfishness. Now, the Bible is very keen on talking about this idea, the idea of selfishness. And I want you to notice, I'm going to reference more so this morning, Philippians chapter 1, uh, because Paul is dealing with brethren who have selfish intentions, those who are coming from selfish ambition and empty conceit, and these are the guys who want all the attention on themselves. And so as Paul is now in prison, they're preaching the gospel with these selfish motives, and it's almost as if they're trying to think, well, Paul, we're going to cause you distress by doing this. It's like we're getting the attention and he's not now because he's stuck in prison. And I've often thought with that text, Paul does not even care because the gospel is being proclaimed 
and in that very thing he will rejoice. So it's not that he liked or approved of their motives, but Christ is being preached. I'm going to rejoice in this. But sometimes we see that, that idea, sometimes from this inclination of a selfish motive. And we have to think there are problems with that. Sometimes it's even in the Lord's church. You ever thought about it? And I see this sometimes in the realm of preaching. And granted, it may be something that happens even in, in the realm of, okay, maybe someone else has come up here and preached, or maybe someone else is uh, leading singing, or, or maybe leading a prayer. And sometimes it can be as simple as this. Someone commends, they, they, they speak well of the person for maybe the lesson they did, or they commend them for the prayer and how helpful it was. And then someone else just gets stirred up in a tizzy about it because they wanted that attention for themselves. That's where we have to be very careful. That is a problem in the brotherhood, sometimes among men. I wouldn't doubt there may be some of those issues among ladies in the world as well. I know it more so with men when it comes to serving in the church. Now, granted, it's problematic. We need to think we as Christians are not trying to get the attention. We're going to see why in just a second. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful about trying to seek our fulfillment from the attention and praise of others. I think this is a problem that social media has just caused more and more to this current generation. Uh, I remember seeing something recently. It was a picture. There was a mirror. It showed an apple in the mirror and an apple like in real life. One had the apple just kind of bitten off mostly. The other had it looking full and pretty and like, you know, it hadn't even been touched. Well, the problem is sometimes when we look at things on social media, we see that person looks like their life is just perfect. And everyone's praising them. Everything looks great. And we don't realize there's a lot going on behind the scenes that's probably not perfect. Don't get that false conception. That false world is what it often becomes by what we see in others' lives behind a computer screen. It's often not what it seems. Now, there's the dangers of this because sometimes we seek that fulfillment we're always going to end up hurt. We're always going to end up disappointed as we're trying to get fulfillment by man and not by God through his son, Jesus Christ. The problem as well is that we start to rob attention from God when we make it about ourselves. I have often thought about the Pharisees and just their, their willingness to do religious acts. But it was interesting. This was kind of a, a point that was brought up to me recently. And it's very interesting. The Pharisees, they seemed to be masters in benevolence, but not in a good way. They were not shy about doing things for other people. Now, granted, the intent for them was to do things with others to see them, to do things in order to get glory from man. The problem is now we rob glory from God that he deserves. This is all about God-given glory. Matthew 5, verse 16 he tells us to let our light shine before men in such a way that they would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Okay, that's the intent of the Christian, pointing the glory to God. Now, last slide, I promise the last one will then be yours. But I want you to think of these things. And we're going to go deeper into this part when we look in the next lesson, Lord willing. And we're going to start to talk about how does God teach us to love each other. That's something that we've got to talk about because Satan teaches us to hate and divide. So we have to see the opposition of that, which is the Bible is so keen on. So we're going to have to see how does the Bible teach us to love 
each other. And these are things that I'm just briefly going to go through. I'd encourage you to write them down, live them out, practice them. Please don't shy away from this. But we need to pray for each other. Paul always prayed for his brethren. There was always the need for us to pray for each other. That is expected. That is the least that we can do is start by praying for our brethren. We need to talk to them. Don't exclude. Don't act like they don't exist. We need to be there talking to them, being in their lives, being active with them, spend time with them. Yes, in some sense, I know it's, it's difficult because there is that inclination of fear uh, in light of what's going on right now in society. But think, there's a sense we need to have community with each other. We need to somehow be in each other's homes. We need to be involved in each other's lives. That is essential. That has to be there for us to grow and work together as the body of Christ. It cannot be neglected. Uh, we need to uh, show interest in their lives. Again, it's not just we're here on Sunday. Uh, how you doing? And I'll see you Wednesday or, or see you next Sunday. We need to be involved. We need to be concerned uh, even about their needs as well. And this is, this is very interesting because this is, in essence, one of the definitions of humility, if I could put it like that. When I'm showing concern for someone else's needs, that's something I need to grow in. That's something I definitely increase. But where we need to show concern for others' needs, because in the Bible, as a Christian, humility is not just about my own interests. It's about the interests of others. And so then I need to regard others as more important than my own self. So I have to be concerned about the needs in others' lives. Now, this is where we're going to end the lesson, but I need you to remember. Sometimes you say, well, well, they didn't do this. Well, the question has to be flipped around, but did I do this? Okay, this is something that goes both ways. We have to act upon these things, do what we can to love each other, to not let Satan creep in, deceive, and divide those of us as brethren. Now, this will, Lord willing, continue next Sunday morning as we talk about that need for love, how God teaches us to do that. But as always, I would extend